Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sackism. Chris, how are you doing this Tuesday evening? David, you know, I'm going to start off with a note of pure appreciation because I have been thinking hard over the last week about how difficult it is to get attention for even really great creative work. I've been doing some, I think, of my best work in the visual art and music realms. And I think it's really, really tough today to, to get through. I'm so grateful for this forum, for our companionship, for our listeners' loyalty. And I think that is building. I've gotten some notices from people who... I didn't think new about us, but I think they're starting to find out. And, you know, to summarize very quickly, I think we can today say, yeah, this is a kind of new dark ages and it's reality TV and extreme cage fighting or the view. And then some sort of char grilled chili cheeseburger, you know, sort of ad. And it would just, you know, you could just think, Oh my God, it's all over. What would the people of Alexandria and ancient Greece and ancient people going back to the caves of Altamira think of what we've done. But on the other hand, part of our problem is our great opportunity and our great source of celebration. There's just so much great material that our species has created. Great art, great ideas, amazing stuff to discover all the time. And it is our lot, strangely, to be at this moment in history when there is so much good stuff. I've got 3,500 years on my Kindle for less than $300. That's one medium. That's text. We're not talking about visual art or music. I mean, it's just... So I think that increasingly what you and I must be about and part of the larger Lost Explorers community is map making. You know, that's really, I, I think that is a sacred, scientific, artistic, magical endeavor to be involved in. And I think it's really cool that that's what we're doing. I think so too. I really like the the PMA, the positive mental attitude. Um, I was thinking the exact same thing because... I've just really been enjoying reading books, paperback books in this case, mm-hmm. but I've been enjoying them without any of the, I'm now so officially so distant from social media. It's been so long since I've been on it that when people mention, I, you know, I found out about this conflict, uh, this war, in fact, between Israel and Palestine um, secondhand through passing my, my father-in-law watching Fox news and you know interesting and, and i and i said oh so that's that's heating up i guess but what a great way to um to engage with the news right so i sat down and watched fox for maybe 15 minutes and i felt like i had received about all that fox news was going to give me at that point because it's just you know it's kind of on a loop they 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 sort of play well the they all thing. are you know sure of course um, 
And, you know, and then I, I poked around the news a little bit, got informed, and I went back to reading, um, I'm, I'm reading a book called Only Forward by Michael Marshall Smith right now, which I'm really enjoying. 1994, very much in the Sacknessum, uh, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, Zanesville vein. Not sure if you're familiar with that book or that author, but it's it's very it's the author yeah yeah it's it's great stuff but i um on a funny note so it was parent teacher conferences this last week and almost (laughs) nobody showed up so on the second day of parent teacher conferences my mentor decided that we should get our steps in around the school and up until that point i'd been teaching on the newer east wing of the school most of which was not built when I attended high school there and our circuit took us to the West wing and upstairs where most of my classes were, I hadn't been avoiding it on purpose, but when I did go on this circuit with her, uh, I was immediately flooded with nostalgia. So heavily was I flooded with nostalgia that I said, I'm going to go to the library and I'm going to see if they have a yearbook from 2005, the year that I graduated. And sure enough, they did. And sure enough, I found myself, I found my picture. This is what's interesting. The quote underneath the picture. So you'll see quotes underneath pictures. Um, And there are things like, you know, uh, never give up. And, you know, if you, if you try your best, you'll always win. Mine was lyrics from a song called Bite the Wax Tadpole by a band called Tub Ring. And the lyrics went like this. This is my high school senior yearbook quote. Last night, I awoke with all the answers, and I quickly grabbed hold of pen and paper to write them down so in the morning I wouldn't forget. The next day, I looked over at what was written, and oddly, it was only ones and zeros, but perfect in the fact that it completed myself. What the hell kind of yearbook quote is that? I don't know, but it's what I wrote down. A message to myself 18 years later. The mind boggles. The mind boggles on so many levels. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think you'll be unpacking that for uh, a few more decades, I dare say. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I dare say. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, well, you know... I'm going to take it as really positive reinforcement because we are worried about you. And I think we have good reason to be, you know, and we've always had good reason (laughs) to be. And I think this is all we can ask of so-called rationality is, Mm -hmm. is to remain with some degree of, if not geometric, at least harmonic congruence with reality. And I think that that reinforces everything I've been concerned about you from the very first moment I ever encountered. Well, first you're writing and then you. So, no, it's just the the deepening and enriching of the anxiety is, is I think, a, a great contribution. You know, I think that's important. You know, isn't it interesting too? speaking of anxiety, the past couple of days I've spoke to you before we started recording. So you have a handle on what I've been doing this past week for listeners. It's just house hunting type nonsense. I'm sure most who have listened to it have been through it. 
either from a rental or from a, a home buyer perspective. But uh, the ambient anxiety has been amplified to such an extent that I I began to find it enjoyable. I felt like I was on speed the past two days. I had trouble going to sleep last night, to be yeah. honest with you. And not well, it and, and it's not and it's not it's not fear. Right. I think that that's really important because I think that anxiety has such a negative connotation. And you hear about people with their anxiety disorders that don't allow them to leave the house, et cetera, et cetera. But I was, I was having a kind of skydive fun the past couple of days with this pulsating electric anxiety. Well, you know, I mean, look at your situation in more aerial terms to take a skydiving approach. Uh, you know, you had a child at a time when a lot of people would go, I don't know if we're going to make, I mean, our, our, our current president, who is heading to being the oldest person leading a government in any history that we know, says, you know, the existential threat of climate change. I mean, that's just one existent. I, a lot of people would say he's an existential threat. COVID, all these things that, you know, and nevertheless, uh, you you got pregnant, you had a child. It There's a lot of optimism. And this is part of the the, the disturbing perverseness of, of your situation, which is also heroically encouraging. You know, and when we think about that, you know, heroism is always perverse. It's always it to lead into a big theme that we're going to talk about. It's counterintuitive. You know, mm -hmm. the, the the baseline is I'm going to run away, mm -hmm. you know, and you're not running away. So I, I think you're you're looking out for some major, you know, new developments in an optimistic way. The house hunting market has never been easy. You know, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. When I was at your stage, you know what the interest rate was? 15 and a half percent. Think about that for a moment. 15 and a half percent. You know, everything is just always higgledy piggledy and adjusts itself. So you're in the midst of a, you know, well, you're surfers. You're surfing a really big wave and you, you weirdly have like an outrigger canoe with not just you surfing, you've, you've got to, you know, lead a, a group or be part of a group anyway, if you're not the leader, mm -hmm. I think you nominally are the leader. Uh, so you really can't fail. Nope. <laughs> That's nope. the beauty of the thing. You can't wipe out. So we know nope. you won't. There yep. you go. Yep. Can't fail. So we won't fail. I like that attitude. And I'm, uh, I mean, it's that attitude or despair. You can do one or the other. I mean, it's really your choice. Yeah. Again. Yeah. You, you, that's, yeah. That's one, yeah, you can. That's one, you can. That's one way to do things. So today, do you have a band and an aphorism for us? I do. Look, and I'm going to just lay a subject to rest here with the band. I, I'm going to go all in and just finish out a theme because it really does perplex me. But the band is has a fun name and a lot of fun and sincere innocence to them once, and they've just gone a little weird. 
They're called the cooties. Hmm. What appears to be a children's TV band gone completely over the top. Think of the Wiggles on acid. Funk music plus K-pop played on Fisher-Price toys. They mix wild, completely artificial fluoro colors with furry costumes, drag outfits, clown makeup, and leather. As the Hollywood Reporter says, at last, village people for preschoolers. (laughs) The name of their album is The Butt Plug Choking Hazard Dilemma. Their single is There Is No 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 Square. And some of the other tracks include Bend Over Ball Monitor, Parents Versus Librarians, Kids on Top, and No Lifeguard on Duty. Well, that is definitely the darkest one, for sure. That is the darkest one. <laughs> the cooties ladies well it ties into your imaginative challenge i do want to lay to rest a certain level of i think pretty um low frequency as opposed to shrill or high frequency rant about this obsession with accessing children with who are demonstrably prepubescent with a sexual gender message of today. I just don't think this is a reasonable proposition. I know what I had to go through to lead a very humble photographic thing of going out to the, you know, the Hoover Dam with young people as a male non, you know, non-elementary school teacher. I don't get all of this drag queen story hour and i i just don't think there's any i think it's bizarre and strange so we're going to get into that in a moment with what i think is a meaningful um country western uh david lynch riff possibly for you in your imaginative challenge but here's my aphorism which i picked up while wandering around the uh, weekend fair. Um, It's a big, big deal. It's one of many events in my lovely small town of Boulder City. This is a great time of year. Fall and spring are gorgeous, you know, because it's not the summer heat and it's not the winter wind and rain. Um, But it's a reminder for us to listen, to listen. You know, I'm I'm a... I've I've got my tape recorder out, but I'm even when I don't have it on for all sorts of weird sounds and found music and noise, I'm still listening to people. And I think this is really important. A woman passed me and said, I like it. Everything's cooked. And I thought, you know, there you go. I mean, the name of of one of the most important works of contemporary, relatively contemporary or 20th century anthropology, The Raw and the Cooked. 
I mean, that's a huge distinction. We're almost hinting on sacred and profane. And I think that we we can often think that the people walking by us are less than we are intellectually. I certainly can think that. And then I think, well, maybe that's not really the right way to look at things. Maybe the right way to look at things is to listen to things. I like it. Everything's cooked. I mean, that's a nice provocative, you know, suggestive line. And to me, it's a reminder that you never know what you'll hear, you know? There's a girl that I teach who is on some sort of some sort of spectrum. I'm not sure what that spectrum is. And she, I'm trying to think of the best way to structure this story to give you an impression of the kind of person she is. She's very addicted to her phone. Uh, she's on her phone way too much. She's usually watching cartoons. She's very childlike. Mm. Um, she carries uh, stuffed animals with her. And she... Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Used to used to try to have the stuffed animals uh, give me a kiss on the cheek. So what I did is I have a stuffed animal of my own that I hold out for her to let the stuffed animals kiss instead. Um, but the uh, it's my oblique strategy to to keep her stuffed animals away. But um, the other day she came up to me and she said, "I have great news." And I said, "What's your great news?" She said, "I'm not scared of spirit anymore." What she meant was she's not scared of Spirit Halloween, the pop-up Halloween store. But I liked that as a message from the universe. I'm not scared of Spirit anymore. But that's nice. that's cool. See? Yeah. Good. So same same deal. Same kind of deal as what you're talking about with I like it. Everything's cooked. It. I just thought that was a nice accidental. I love that. That's good. That's good. Mm-hmm. Um. All right. Cool. So an imaginative challenge you you've hinted at it and i'm uh i'm trep- trepidatious okay the working title for this is the ballad of slippery chicken all right slippery chicken is like a reverend america style hero protagonist uh antagonist But we're talking in general thematic terms. Howdy doody. It's howdy doody time. That's before my time. So I know it's before your time, but I know you Mm -hmm. you know what I'm talking about. Yep. Meets the book of Job, the Count of Monte Cristo, and maybe Charles Bronson in Death Wish, Liam Neeson, and John Wick. Or, Or there could be a happy ending full of Buddhist enlightenment and Christian charity. So that's the thematic background. But this character, who becomes known as Slippery Chicken, was born Ronwell Booty, an unfortunate last name. It's spelled B-U-T-Y for anyone interested. But nonetheless, the homonym problem was there all along. His father was a drunken rodeo clown who was crippled by a Brahma bull. And so he turns into a wheelchair barker at a very second rate, the last of the dubious family circuses. And I happen to have um, traveled with one of them. 
not quite this dubious. His mother was the fat woman who died in an accident with one of the elephants, which may have had some unseemly and outre Catherine the Great with the horse overtones. I'm going to hope that all of our listeners, oh, at least a fair percentage, have some idea of what I mean by the Catherine the Great reference there. He then went into a series of foster homes, enduring ritual abuse in a satanic cult. He was raised briefly by a coyote in a basement. But nonetheless, Ronwell Beauty becomes Slippery Chicken, survives and transforms himself into a homespun retread of Buffalo Bob and becomes a kid show cult celebrity. Peanut Butter and Jelly Waffles. He founds a franchise, total success, until he's accused of child molesting, set up by greedy parents out to Michael Jackson into a payoff. He's abandoned by the industry and railroaded into prison, where as a child molester, not surprisingly, be back from the darkness of savage suffering. The Ballad of Slippery Chicken. Shoot, shoot. Wait, there you are. Can you hear me? Yeah. All right. So I lost you after he went to prison and as a child molester, that's not that that's obviously not not a good thing. No, finally back on the outside with a gruesomely prolapsed anus, chronic <laughs> arthritis, neuropathy, and a wounded soul. Does he go on a rampage of revenge? Or does he shed beatific light back from the darkness of his savage suffering? All right. Sounds good. Okay. Cool. There you go. Yep. I hope we don't have any more connectivity issues. Um, but all right, cool. So we have to make a decision which way Slippery Chicken wants to go on his path to redemption. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it is it is it rampage or is it blessing? Okay. All right. So you sent me a text with some bullet points about what we can talk about today. I'll start here at the top. The line as arguably the ultimate human invention. It's pretty good. I think most people would say the wheel, right? Or I don't know, fire, but the line, the line, the thing that separates, that closes in, that sections off inside and outside, that you claim is the ultimate human invention. 
I think the line way predates the wheel. And I think fire is really just a discovery and recovery. You know, I mean, fires happen all the time. It's how you keep them going, what you, you know, control. But the line, you know, and here's the weird thing. The definition of a line is the connection between two points of space. But we can have squiggly lines. We can have spiral lines. You know, we can have lots of different kinds of lines. But we think of a straight line first. That's odd. That's not necessarily the, the line's problem. That's our problem. And that's a weird example of emblematic transfer almost instantly. That's how important the line is. But you walk around out you know, in the world, and people go, well, there's no such thing as straight lines in nature, which is not true at all. But nonetheless... When you do see straight lines, you think human intervention in some way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, there's a lot of signs of humanity that's not, you know, that, that are not as uh, clear as a straight line. And in fact, very few people can actually draw a straight line freehand. Right. Right. So it's very peculiar how that works. But there, there is a, a universal struggle with the linearity nature of line. The fact that we really do think of it going, and we think of it going left to right, which is not a good way to think of it really overall. I mean, that's a like Everything starts going, you know, and we start getting this, uh, reminds me of being of tripping days when you go, you know, you get that sort of hand floating thing sitting. And uh, now, but I think there is a, a universal struggle with that great human invention, which seems to be so powerful, but also creates so many problems. Mm-hmm. So that's my first point. I think there is, I think that it's the essence of drawing. It's the essence of geometry. Um, it's one of the core principles of, well, what links arithmetic with higher math. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's the, that's a kind of baseline of what we are talking about here. We have to accept that the line is the fundamental invention of humanity, right? The first, the foundational one. Second thing you say is the universal struggle with line and the linear. So this might be the problem, one of the problems that you hinted at, right? The idea of the line is being so foundational that it leads to uh, a preference for the linear, for, for one thing to follow after the other, right? And so this thing that becomes so helpful in, you know, linking uh, these different forms of maths and being able to create buildings and architecture and sort of, I guess, to begin to order thought in a way. Absolutely. Certainly ordering our sense of time does it yeah. not, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. I think everything you've just said is vital. So foundational, it becomes problematic in the sense that it's 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 incapable of analysis often, but certainly is resistant to analysis. We take it for granted and it becomes pervasive. It, it permeates our very consciousness and determines thought. It is one of, I think it's the core idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if people who listen to Lost Explorers on a regular basis will know that we're often 
I mean, the foundation, the, the fundamental thing that we do is to not think linearly necessarily. Oblique strategies are the order of how we do things. So if we, but what Chris is doing so far is really interesting, which is acknowledgement of the importance of the line and linearity, but that necessary but not sufficient idea that there is a bit more to it that we can move past it and start to get into more squiggly oscillating territory. Well, and this ties back to sort of my moment of appreciation at the start, because I realized that we would not be here Mm -hmm. as the capable and dangerous and profoundly self-conflicted life forms that we are, had it been for people following a completely linear path. Mm -hmm. I mean, that just doesn't work on any level at all. From the very, very outset, there was some sort of shamanic spirality of thinking that broke with the linear, that was expanding it, that made it work on different levels. And it's very difficult to see that in today's world of reality TV, extreme cage fighting, the view by, you know, completely partisan politics, an endless stream of just nonsense pouring out on us it's very hard to see where the innovation of mind and culture will come from that will carry us forward so it's no wonder that a lot of people are putting all their faith in ai Um, but i think that if we look at how the linear managed to somehow evolve in some completely crazy ways on what must have been a profoundly magical and and individual level at great risk to those individuals, they somehow began to move the lines, move the pictures, create a dynamic multidimensional map ceremony of the world. And I think the idea of a map ceremony is kind of a pretty good summation, in a sense, of of what culture became fairly early in the piece. Um, But I think the the way to break the linear prison, because everything's a prison if you can't get out of it, you know? I mean, and we know that. We know that there are great celebrities who enjoy tremendous wealth and richness, you know, and yet they live terrible lives. I was thinking about Michael Jackson and Prince, both who died, you know, younger than I am, you know. Um, How much more could, you know, and yet I think pretty unhappy. So if any kind of happiness is the goal, I'd suggest it's a pretty good goal. We have to maybe rediscover some of the clues from the dark heroes of the counterintuitive world and to break with that linear pattern, which is so profound. It's, as you said, it's so foundational. It's, it's just hard to get a a handle. Yeah. 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 Okay. I see. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it now. I'm seeing it. So it's a break, uh, a rejection or a, a counterintuitive push against the anodyne linear progressive idea that money comfort 
doing less, receiving more constant dopamine firing. You mentioned, uh, you know, cage matches and $5 wing nights and, and things like that, which are great in their own way. Uh, but a kind of move against that. Something else that's really interesting is earlier you brought up <clears throat> that our central task as people in this day and age, as lost explorers, essentially, is map making. And then you made a connection just now between linearity and map making and how the the development of these lines led to this ability to create these maps. And so the jump from that then is is what is the counterintuitive nonlinear next step in map making? I like thinking of it in terms of, okay, so what does a map look like now if it's not a series of lines put on a page that make one-to-one -one sense with that which they are supposed to represent, right? And I'm thinking, again, back to stick charts. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about uh, different pieces of abstract art, but not doing it, not doing it to be artsy-fartsy or obtuse, but actually attempting to have it make sense, maybe not to everybody, but to have some people see it and be like, I get what that's a map of almost almost immediately right right um, that's very interesting to me the the kind of pushback against linearity in terms of map making specifically well i think that the the key that you i mean that really is exactly what we're really trying to explore with lost explorers and i think it's what mm -hmm. you and i gravitate towards in art and all kind of all forms of inquiry and it, it is breaking with that one-to-one -one ratio congruence, which only works on one level of perception and, and analysis, really. I mean, it's very, it's very flawed from the very get-go. So the idea that you would want that, that you would need that literality, that you would need that one-to-one uh, -one denial of prepositional distance and abstraction, even as you eat the abstraction and accept the terms of the prepositional distance, that's a conflict of mind that I think we're trying to sort of break out of by suggesting maybe a more sparkles off the wheel, to quote Whitman, more of an oblique, more of a mosaic, more of a kaleidoscopic, more of a harmonic, rather than melodic, rhythmic, one-to-one, -one, you know, this is what this means. That's just not going to work. We're going to, what we are stimulating and hope, hopefully really promoting, I think is a much richer sort of gumbo, collagist approach to engaging with reality rather than perceiving it or certainly merely consuming it you know and is that is that what you are getting at with your musical pieces that's what you're doing in your music isn't it yeah i mean i think that the the well the music has sort of two strings one is certainly uh variations on the trance uh hypnosis to dehypnotize frame of north african music 
certain kinds of Indian music, gamelan music, breaking, it's an establishing a new trance mode to break a trance, to break a trance of new media, consumerism, linearity of thought. It is stepping outside of time signature. I mean, that's when, when Arabic music began to really make sense to me. I thought, well, it, it, I, I do need to give myself up to this. I do need to get lost in it. I need to not know what the next, you know, what the chorus is. I need to not mm-hmm. have all of those expectations. And we talked earlier, but I think one of my better observations is that to some extent, melody is music that you can hear while you're not hearing the music. Mm-hmm. I think that is a problem. So certainly one of the things I'm trying to do is to destabilize those patterns of expectation, which are really projections of very tired grids and scaffolding systems onto what could be very dynamic, energizing, you know, systems. And uh, to put this into perspective, I shot some uh, steel and also from some Asian cities, bamboo, you know, building scaffolding. Right. You know, while they're building stuff, mm-hmm. you know, scaffolding, <laughs> literally mm-hmm. just different forms. Place that over uh, a field of absolute full bell blooming jellyfish that I shot in the Indian Ocean. So you get the ultimate organic forms undulating in a Reichian, Jungian, orgasmic psychological physical sense and they're also you know to some extent colonial organisms they're they're kind of not individuals they're all you know together so they're a definition of culture and what but over that you've got this grid work of very physical human scaffolding and i could have had like you know the matrix you know i could have had zeros and ones and that sort of thing but i wanted something more that were set up by men you know, mm-hmm. are right angled and have safety in mind. And you look at those patterns and it's, it's exactly what I'm trying to do with all of my teaching methods and my personal meditation methods. I'm trying to transpose the one with the other because I want that oscillation. I can't live, we can't live in jellyfish, vegetative, organic, night-blooming orchid, you know, organic sense all the time, nor can we live in the gridded structure of scaffolding or the digital code or whatever. You know, we need to be going backwards and forwards and all of those dimensional shifts. That's awesome. That's a great that is a great explanation. The uh, into the counterintuitive via intuition and instinct. Now, what is the difference between intuition and instinct? This is a really important uh, thing for us to be exploring. So, what I'm going to put forward is purely speculative and propositional. And, but I, I, I just I, I wanted to get your response to it. I think there is a confusion between intuition and instinct on the basic language level, but I think they can be peeled apart. Mm-hmm. I think instinct is presumed to be uh, a larger category of 
organic animal behavior that is probably delivered and performed phylogenetically. So it has a, a, some sort of physical gene transference down the centuries. I think mm -hmm. it is the basis mm -hmm. of things like ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. I mean, your son Gus went through that. You went through, I went, you know, we, we looked like other forms. Yep. We could have looked into the wombs and that physicality of transferred inherited memory and performance of being, I think is what we mean in really murky and unacceptably undefined behaviorist psychological terms, instinct. I think that is a really um, bogus notion that is still very rich in our culture. And for readers who love Tor Heyerdahl, one of his early uh, book of uh, Fatuhiva when they were um, in Polynesia, in the Marquesas, which is still a wild, uh, strange area in many ways. He went off with his very young wife. This is not long after he was a paratrooper in World War II. So these are proto-hippies really going off to the edge of the world. She was a London School of Economics you know, student, and she left to be naked and his wife on this you know, crazy set of islands. But she's the one who really prosecuted the idea of instinct, and in my experience, and really calls it a very empty word that excuses a lot of lack, fundamental lack of understanding and many, many conflicts. Because we always seize on instinct when it's kind of, we think it's sort of positive or good or just acceptable. But when it's not so nice, when it means beating a creature over the head with a bone or, you know, some other kind of violence. Sort of bit. No, we're not so good about instinct then. But intuition in my frame currently, I would propose, is a subset individual psychological manifestation of instinct. And I think it inherits all the murkiness, all the laziness, and all the ineptitude of our notions of instinct, not saying there isn't something correct about it, mm -hmm. but I think there is something that intuition tells us that is a clue. And it's certainly something I think will resonate with you just a kind of minor sort of glockenspiel way. It seems to me that intuition, whether we act on it or not, and I agree there's a difference there. We've all been in situations where we've had intuitions and we haven't acted on it. I've got a hunch to my gut, you know. I hate that expression. There is a level of certainty. There's a level of epistemological unquestionability there that I think is very, very fascinating. Because later we go, well, I should have followed my intuition. You know, that's that's when when oftentimes we become aware of it is when we didn't follow it. Yeah. But there's never a question of going, well, I don't think that's that's right or or that's just subjective, you know, mm. because it's not subjective to us. Mm. You know, that's the problem with the whole subject object thing is it 
nothing subjective is necessarily subjective to us. Some things are. Some things we're quite willing to go, no, look, that's just my opinion. I don't like onion ring. You know, we're, we're, we, we have no problem with that a lot of the time. But intuition is some kind of profound, uh, inexplainable, inexplicable knowledge that is not questioned in some way. And I think that is a hint to then what we end up constructing as counter intuition. And I don't think that's the same thing at all. I think that counter intuition becomes a social way of packaging the problems of intuition that if we maybe did this, you know, maybe there are more shaman among us, you know, then, uh, then are you know we're are willing to come forward. So that is one of my secondary propositions that what becomes the counterintuitive may not be fair to to people's imaginations and capabilities. They may just simply be selling out like a lot of today's liberals, for instance. Ha. I like that. I like that final that final dig. Um, yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. That makes a lot of sense that, that net, the counterintuitive can in fact, uh, sort of go both ways, I guess, if you want to put it that way, but that was a really good explanation in terms of intuition versus instinct. Two distinct examples of contemporary illogic as opposed to the counterintuitive illogic. This is a uh, this is cool for me because illogic is such a cool word and it almost it feels like you know you can you could be like a sorcerer who has entered the illogic and you're in this upside down twin peaks realm where well things are illogical yeah, but through looking glass through looking glass well here here are two examples that I think that are that are important for starters, the current expression in the media, which my AI system tells me is very much present in mainstream media today, but the underlying idea, I was born in the wrong body. Now, I don't mean to direct that at any you know, one particular person or group, but what I've noticed about that expression is that it is, first of all, an unavoidably, inescapably, a metaphysical position. Now, that's completely cool. You and I are totally in favor of and are completely comfortable with metaphysics problems and positions. The illogic comes from here is that in the majority of cases, I think a larger metaphysical position is totally denied. And I think the idea of metaphysics is denied. I mean, to be born in the wrong body is linked to, if not the core idea, one of the central ideas of the five major world religions, including animist magic. Mm -hmm. And I think too often that phrase, being born in the wrong body, comes from people who are really in denial of all religious positions and are not certainly not relaxed or friendly about other people's metaphysical issues and problems. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think there is an issue there. And I think that people who adopt the, the two-spirit idea, I, I accept that that is at least accepting a metaphysical position. But I don't think you can have that both ways. I don't think you can say, I am an atheist, but I was born in the wrong body. Mm. I don't believe in the the problems and conundrums of metaphysics. And I don't have respect for how other people are dealing with those enigmas. But I'm going to seize on mine and say, well, this. No, I'm sorry. That That is... A, that's rooted in an illogical, contradictory position. I'll give you a complementary idea. Same sort of ideological arena, though. What does it mean to be on the right side of history? We hear that expression in the media. Again, my AI system tells me that that is very common today. What a strange idea, because in the majority of cases, the people putting forward that notion, are enormously suspicious of the idea of history. They claim it is entirely a social construct, which I think most people would agree with, but that it is intensely and inherently driven by rhetorical purposes. In really crude terms, often one of the theories of histories they fall back on is history is written by the victors. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a war. Okay, so if that's the case, well, then why would you want to be on the right side of history? How can you think that that's a good moral value directing your behavior in the moment if, in fact, you disavow all the terms? Whoa. I've never heard it put that way, but that's brilliant. Those those are at complete odds with each other. You're 100% right. You want to be on the right side of history, and yet most of history apparently is wrong yes there's just there's fundamental conflict so this is what i mean by illogic that really creates i think tremendous cognitive dissonance in the individuals who maintain these positions but i think this ripples out across an ideological framework into society and culture at large and you can just see that it, it, there's nothing good that comes of these ideas with without examination and some kind of self-reflection. Absolutely. Wow. That is such a good point. <laughs> and it's simple things like that. And that's what the beauty of this show is, is that that kind of breaks the whole thing wide open. When you can find the fundamental contradictions that people base so much of their existence and their way of thinking on it just it feels like a relief like an intuition that i've had for a while is being confirmed in that way man that is so great that's awesome um oh i appreciate that because you know i mean think of it like the, the being born the wrong body idea i mean mm-hmm. that should on just street level barstool level philosophy link in with things like the abortion debate. And I don't think it does. You know, I mean, I'm not trying to be contentious, but I'm just trying to say that when people have unexamined ideas that they're fiercely committed to in one front, they need to sort of see what the implications are in other realms 
of life because we just don't stay in one place. We move around a whole bunch of different environments, you know? Have you ever felt like you were born in the wrong body? No. No, I don't. I, I mean, I certainly have often had fantasies about, you know, I wish I were tall or I wish I were bigger at various points. You know, there have been no, but I, I, I don't have any connection. I was thinking about this. I really, are you there, dude? It's about in, uh, uh, oh, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You froze up for a moment there. I don't know. Okay. okay. No, in answer to your question, no, I, I don't think so. I've had fantasies about being bigger or taller, stronger, or younger, you know, all that kind of stuff. But no, I I feel I certainly don't feel any uh sense of um a gender uh mm-hmm. you know, disparity there. And I I I have empathy for people who do. I'm not saying that that's, I, I really, but on the other hand, I have given my pre-existence some thought and I'm thought about extended existence. And I think about dreaming and where I exist right now. If what my thinking has any truth to that at all i'm involved in all of that and i'm willing to just look at any of that and if anyone has any thoughts on that i try to have the time to engage with that i do not have a fixed position that i then never go back to Mm, mm. right because being born in the wrong body implies that there is that there was ever a right body for you to be in who was, I mean, that is just such a phenomenally weird bureaucratic metaphysics program that I just can't even imagine saying that. And here's the other thing. I don't accept that people are just using that as an expression. I think that people need to be held accountable. Me for too. Yeah. Literality, the yes. literality of metaphor through mm-hmm. sheer overuse. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can just walk away and go, oh, I was just meaning that as an expression. You know, I, I, no, sorry. It's a metaphysical no. position. Back it up. Back it up. Say it with your chest. Right. That's how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. Back it up. Um, let me see what this next point is. That's such, man, that is such a good point. Uh, a sharp, profoundly influential example of counterintuition from science. Hit me. All right. I mean, I think this is so fundamental. It was thought of a long time ago. It still takes a little bit of, you know, resources to execute, but you can do this at a lot of schools. Uh, I mean, it's not, it's not impossible to, to prove this time and again, but in a vacuum, a feather will fall at the same speed as a stone or say a bowling ball. I'm I'm in a bowling league now, so I'm going to say a bowling ball. Now that's counterintuitive. And that's a remarkable insight into the nature of the world. That ties back all the way to what we're saying about the ancient Greeks and Thales and the difference between 
wondering about the nature of the world on the level that we exist at, the Newtonian sort of level, before, you know, we even think about a quantum atomic level or whatever, or some sort of, of profoundly mystical spiritual level of Maya, you know, the world is illusion. That That's a great religious, spiritual, artistic idea, but it doesn't really help us with any kind of physics. The notion that in a vacuum, a feather and a bowling ball fall at the same rate. Now, that is an insight into the nature of the universe that is quite remarkable. And when you think about it, I mean, it, it really is the link from Galileo to Newton all the way to Einstein. I mean, it really is, I mean, one of the... The two theories of relativity deals with gravitation and the thought of what that really means is just remarkable. You know, it really, really is profoundly. I mean, would I don't think I would have had that thought in a vacuum, a feather and a bowling ball fall at the same rate. Mm-mm. That's that I mean, still trips me out to be honest with you. Well, even thinking of a vacuum itself is 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 a really but it, but you can't say that is a metaphysical position. That is a profoundly physical idea, but it's tremendously imaginative. Mm-hmm. To imagine mm-hmm. that that you could have a situation in which, you know, there was no air resistance that you that you kind of well, I mean, a, a vacuum is emblematic. There's no reduction of that idea. It is what it is. And to be able to think, th- and then, of course, the, the ability to physically prosecute that, to create that situation and demonstrate it experimentally, that's a whole other level. But I think that is a, an example of true imaginative thinking. And if you then actually take that to the Galileo, Newtonian, Einstein level of experimentation, you see the absolute inversion of the, I was born in the wrong body. There's no, there's no examination of that idea. There's no acceptance of the worldview that that is associated with. There's no desire to prosecute that with experiment and demonstration and shareability, shareability in a kind of a tangible way. It's complete solipsism, not subjectivity. It's just a complete removal of oneself from any responsibility of the ripples of the idea. Whereas the idea of, well, Actually, how do you think, you know, what is going on? That's a profoundly generous, open-hearted, risky, just pure heroic uh, investigation of what's going on. And I think that is the nature of the counterintuitive. And it it does face struggle in societal terms. I mean, people died for this kind of behavior. There's no question. We're limiting the the, the framework of, of these, these counterintuitions. And we're always concerned that these ideas are mad. 
You know, the link between that kind of thinking and madness is, inex, you know, it's inextricable. There's no way around that. But I, I think that those are two very, very different modes of thinking. One, or the first two, my examples of, of illogic, are things that are in heavy practice, heavy rotation, so to speak, every day in mainstream media, social media, daily lives. The counterintuitive idea of a stone or a feather falling at the same rate in a vacuum is a beautiful, just crucial scientific idea. But I wanted to throw that back to you as, as an example of something that you might find a, res, a reference, a resonance, an algorithm for in your own life, not on a, the grand scale. You don't have to do that for us. But where was something where you did at least follow the discipline of the Galileo, Newton, Einstein trend? And you just said, okay, I got this weird idea or I got this weird question and I'm going to just pull on it. You know, I'm going to mm-hmm. pull this, this creature's tail until it comes out from under the couch and look at it. And maybe we'll hug and maybe I'll have to beat it over the head with a hammer or whatever. But I'm going to get it out from under the couch. I think that the first thing that comes to mind is the idea of the atom and infinitely small particles. Because when I was in high school, Brian Green came out with his string theory book. So the big idea was that beneath atoms, there were these vibrating strings, and then there was something beneath that and beneath that. And over time, that became no longer in vogue. And so now there's this idea that in between all of the, like everything that we see as being solid, there's actually not very much there at all, which has interesting resonances with Buddhist thought, you know, everything being nothing for the most part. Um, But I the the pulling out from under the bed was just either that or some questions with evolution right and i'm still pulling that particular monster out from under the bed because some of it just doesn't it still doesn't connect for me right good I good can't, i can't i cannot accept that over millions of years that you would get a fish to crawl onto land And somehow through random mutation, or maybe not so random, even not so random mutation, eventually begin to walk on land and get all the way up to us. I don't quite, I still don't quite accept that. So the the massive space between atoms is something Mm -hmm. that I could read about for days. And the, if you want to call them missing links in evolution, that's fine. Even though, you know, that has its own connotation, but, um, being highly skeptical of that. And now that we're on this riff, I'm highly skeptical of a lot of things. So I become highly skeptical of things like like climate change, for example, which puts you very firmly in a camp. And it's also tiresome what people think that means about you. But the, the idea of, well, you know, if humans can have this influence on the weather, this is one of those, this is like, like your, your brilliant, riff that you had earlier right about how these two things can't be true at the same time it's like if if human beings do have an influence on the weather and the environment and the climate but then you know apparently we can't influence things like rain 
and the temper like the there, there's nothing that we can do to to change that there's no such thing as cloud seeding or or anything like that i think what i love the most about this counterintuitive bit including the stone and the feather falling at the same rate in a vacuum is that in most cases in my experience reading on this kind of stuff they take amateurs right to figure this kind of thing out it has to be somebody who and this is this seems to be true in uh whenever a, a mathematical equation that nobody can figure out gets solved you've heard this story a hundred times right some mm -hmm. amateur looked at it and they find a mistake in the third step of the equation that everybody's just glossed over until then and that's why everybody's been stuck because nobody went back and looked at just the real fundamentals what was going on. So I think that the counterintuitive and the amateur have a real symbiotic relationship here in what you're talking about and the ability to practice beginner's mind. But um, more than that, uh, I think just, just being an autodidact and being, being a lifelong amateur at things is vital to the counterintuitive as well. Right. I mean, I think that that's how, that's how this kind of stuff gets figured out. I think that's one of the most important issues in the history and philosophy of science. And it's a huge dividing line. Uh, you know, we often talk about the definitions of modernity and how we might sort of, you know, put some shape on that mist. And one of the key issues scientifically in the sociology of science is that movement from the gifted amateur, the aristocratic amateur with capabilities, you know, uh, von Humboldt, you know, um, well, Darwin to some extent, uh, absolutely. Um, there's a whole explosion of possibility in the obsessive, eccentric, idiosyncratic amateur pool of knowledge that the 19th century delivered as a kind of climax from the Renaissance to that point. And then the tidal wave of corporatism and academia and officialness sets in in the 20th century. And one of the big questions, you know, I think for us as a species now is to what extent we can access that individual uh, eccentric, idiosyncratic, amateur perspective anymore in major mm -hmm. fields of knowledge and innovation. As far as I can see, I think they happen in the case of, you know, inventions, peculiar inventions, someone hits the big time with something. But then we never hear of anything more, you know, we don't hear of big ideas from, I think if you're going to be part of cultural discourse now, you're pretty limited. I think you need to be on the faculty of maybe, you know, 20 universities in the world, or, you know, in the R&D department of like DuPont, and that structure is so fundamentally linear and progressive in a negative sense of credentialism and status that I think it, it really places some very profound limitations on human problem-solving capabilities, but it absolutely delimits the, the core uh, swampland of the unknown of curiosity and inquiry and, and ghost hunting out on the edge 
of of what's known you know absolutely we'll be right back i hear a i hear a calling in the distance okay right david i i i have crunchy snacks i was telling david before i made my own chips and um you know, you can't justify it in the sense of time spent for convenience, because obviously that's not the case. But I do like the extra flavor that I've imbued my corn chips with. And they're very crunchy. Delicious. Worth the effort. Wanna get more? And while David's still on uh, hiatus here, um, I'll say that I've also made some progress on my blowgun hunting and have taken out a couple of really beautiful collared lizards. A Mojave collared lizard is a beautiful thing. And I do say a prayer when I take their lives, but I've enjoyed eating them. So... David, this is what it, it, it moved to corn chips. And then I was talking about lizards that I've been hunting. I'm sorry. Excellent. No, that's awesome. That's that's a good riff. I like that. Um, so for today, I think putting a pin in this, this is a really good start to this. I think this is an important idea. And I like the connection between amateurs. And I love, 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 love being on the right side of history versus all of history being wrong. That's That's huge. That's probably my biggest takeaway. Would you like to hear about Slippery Chicken? Oh, I do. I do. The Ballad of Slippery Chicken. Lay it on us. Revenge or blessing. Slippery Chicken gets out of jail. And he realizes that the only place that he can get a job is at the very foster home that initially abused him. While he's there, he befriends his co-workers, one of whom is an alcoholic rodeo clown. Another one is a fat woman who has a strange attraction to elephants. And the other who is convinced that he is a wolf. The only show on at the hospital that the people are allowed to watch is Slippery Chicken. And eventually he starts to realize that he might have been hired here because these people think that he is the best molester of all time. They're all his fans. Well, this sets him off. He begins to listen to a song that he wrote for his show called Let It Lay, Make It Pay, that he begins playing over and over again, chasing the neighborhoods of the parents who wronged him, the people who raped him. He begins to build an arsenal, lassos with teeth like the suckers of giant squids, six-shooter rocket launchers, and something he calls cowboy pokers. But at some point, he's watching an episode of Slippery Chicken with his new friends as reality is beginning to get more and more slippery. 
And he hears a song on the episode called You Ain't No Cowboy. And it's a song about no matter how much life you've lived, you never feel like you're the thing that other people think you are. And instead, you just feel like a collection of things that have happened to you. And in that moment, Slippery Chicken realizes that he's not broken. He's rather a series of experiences that have led him to be broken. And he's no more broken than he is Slippery Chicken. So he cuts a hole in the seat of his pants and lets his prolapsed anus hang out and says that this is Ronwell Booty's prolapsed anus, but it doesn't deserve it. The end. Oh, I think that's wonderful. You know, um, one of my uh, many ideas is to... uh, A short film. No, I think it could be, well, it would go as long as you could go for. It would be a real life thing of you as a a CIA captive in a mind experiment, having to improvise in a kind of thousand and one nights, you know, like maybe Rios is held captive and she only stays alive as long as you can keep storytelling and what you're challenged with, because, you know, we're all creatures of our generation and our milieu. You're challenged with just carrying on postmodern lost classics that never got written and just riffing them off in like a, a thousand and one nights in a kind of rubber room setting with only your voice, your face, your body to tell the story with. And as long as you can keep going. And I think you could just do a beautiful riff on that. And I think that would probably wherever that would end would be the extent of the bubble that, that we kind of mean by that whole dream framework of, of postmodernism. I love you that. Know, I love how you engage with these stories. I, I've got, know, I've got something really special coming up for, for next week. It's like, um, well, it's like a really, really intense single malt whiskey from Grouse Manor in Scotland. You know, it's mm-hmm. like something the old gamekeeper would bring to you, you know, on a rainy night. I'm looking forward to that. I think that that could be a film or that's a good idea for a YouTube channel, actually. Just improv stories yeah, you know, in that way. And we could set it up with the... 15 minute short film background of it in every episode is it would ride that line between you know kind of reality game show but it would have that fun fictional background to it and it would always be the same room with the same you know spotlight or whatever and you'd hear a voice saying here's your prompt go and it would be a 10 minute video of just story creation and you know what might be so interesting about that and what might make that a hit is in this age of ai that would be a direct rebuttal to everything that ai is right it would be a human being yes it would creating as the episode go and that would be the gimmick of it it would be no cuts whatsoever right if if i flub it then i flub it and that's that's the episode or we 
I flub and then I say, okay, give me a second. And again, no cuts. If I have to wait for a minute, then it extends for that minute of thinking, 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 and then we begin. But this kind of um, content creation, to use the term, uh, this kind of content creation that is radically pro-human creativity might have a space in this kind of emerging AI arms race that's going on right now. Well, I think it, I, I love that you support this because I think it'd be a great challenge. I think it's a much more interesting and straightforward approach to the literary death match idea, which was kind of yesterday's news. But I still enjoy that I participated in one of those. But I mean, imagine some of our writer friend colleagues like Grant Walmack would not be he couldn't even think of not accepting that challenge. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He'd be in it. He'd be in it. And I think anybody, some of the people that we, you know, Grant's a really great friend and associate, and there are many others, Tony Duchesne, on and on and on. But there are some people who might go, oh, I don't know, but could they avoid it? You know, could they avoid the challenge? And I think it, it would really be, uh, yeah. Oh man, this would be so cool as a channel. This would be so cool. Not necessarily as a podcast because I believe I think No, it's a separate shorter. thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. These would be videos and you would say, "Hey, I've got this kind of like what Jay's doing with experience.computer, which we've both been on and I believe is going to launch sometime this year." Um but something like that that has a like you come on the sh like shows like The Moth are really yeah. popular. I don't know if you've heard of the moth. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, I did. You know, yeah. it's this is kind who... of a new version of that. A little bit more competitive, right, right, open right. form, and uh -huh. lost uh -huh. explorers ish. You know, right, right, exactly, exactly. No, I think I think there could be. I think we might have just invented a really cool new show. Well, we know some good people who would be in it because. Yeah. It does take a kind of, you know, competitiveness, curiosity, and a little bit of courage. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And that would be the deal. It'd be like, we just need 15 minutes of your time. You know, maybe we can even time it and just say, you know, we're going to give you a prompt and you're going to have 15 minutes to give us an outline, a pitch. Yeah. For say a, a movie or a novel, however they want to conceptualize it, right? Or if they want to get creative, they could say this would be a, five-part prog rock album series they'd have to deliver on that premise but that could be the way that they go this is a cool idea nobody who's listening to this better steal this but well uh, i think that we we could start this off with some really i mean you know we've got the prompts um you know and we've got the the i the angle on this that i think it would be um yeah sure other people can you know adapt it sure that'd be cool too you know um we put out ideas david so that other people can steal them you know because we're so generative and generous you know we, we've mm -hmm. got we've got a lot more up the tank you know mm -hmm. there are i mean i can't oh, even this is such a brilliant it. idea i mean this is this is so this has been hanging here this whole time this is so smart because it's just the imaginative challenge but posed to other people yeah basically Ooh, blown up well i i have some real i mean i've just been in a real groove and i and also you're so fun to work with you know this is the thing if you meet people who are fun to hang with fun to share with 
who energize you as opposed to enervating you, then everything starts to build. And I've got a couple more coming up that I think are just simply breathtaking that really they might be worth almost whole episodes. And we'll just put this to the test because it's a, it's one of my, I don't know. It's, it's, it was building for a long, long time, but I think, and it's very straightforward in larger, you know, literary terms. So people can understand the framework, but it's highly specific and it's, tailored to you and i think it's going to be really cool but there are many more coming up but that was cool that is thank very you cool. for the ballad of slippery chicken oh no problem thanks for the prompt do you have a tool and a tip for us today yeah here's the tool and this this ties into uh where we started uh this episode's discussion but it's 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 part of of course this bigger movement um, I've been hearing from friends who um, have kids who are kind of trying to become adults. They're in that they're a little bit younger than you are. They're sort of working out what the next sort of phase is. And an expression came up, and they're 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 talking to potential partners about marriage and you know family and this next sort of thing, and they're saying, "Well, what's your timeline?" And I've been thinking a lot about timelines because of my memory and alertness book, and of course I've been thinking about the line, the notion of lines, and how that unfortunately carries this linearity, this straight edgedness, this kind of you know. It's not squiggly. It's not spiral. It's not parallel. It's not all the things that lines can be, as in curves. You know the subject of calculus, and I've got a whole new frame on calculus coming up in the episodes to come that I'm really excited about. But here's the tool: simply of imagine moving from a timeline. Okay. I was just thinking about the timeline since my return to America, trying to connect the dots. Where was I, you know, across these years? When was I teaching in Seattle? When was I teaching in Africa? When did I go back to Indonesia? When did we start our, you know, that kind of thing. What happens when you move from timeline to time frame? And you still have the, the right angled notion of, of the, the line. That's what we're saying with lines. It's kind of a right angled, it's a it's a rigidity, it's a straight edge thing. It's something you draw with a tool rather than something you're capable of yourself. The frame becomes that, but it's a little bit more dimensional. It's certainly not one-dimensional, and it's perhaps more than two-dimensional. You can get some richness of framing and and have you know, this whole devouring mirror sort of idea. But then what happens when you go to from time frame to time map? You know, and when you truly dimensionalize and kaleidoscope and topographically have, you know, some real interdimensionality. That's what we need to be doing with our thinking. It's not conceptually difficult. I'm really talking about dimensionality here right? I mean, that's what it is. You can actually do this in a very straightforward sense from a straight line on a paper, on paper or a screen to a frame to then uh, essentially a cube or dimensional, you know, shapes. 
But you move into the world of a map, you've got something interactive and you've broken with the linearity of the dimensional idea. You've really complicated things in the sense that that this that's what reality is. That's what our perception is. That's what dealing with our memories, our emotion. We're, we're packaging up all of those things. You know, we're not stopping, you know, our lives to go, I hear my son yelling and I'm going to go there. But meanwhile, nothing else matters in the whole world at all. We're just in a vacuum falling like the bolt. No, that doesn't work. That does not work. You have to deal with that and deal with the kaleidoscopic density of information around you. Otherwise, your presence isn't worth anything. I mean, you are then just the bolt. I mean, that's not what Gus needs. He doesn't need for you to be falling at the same rate, you know? So there is an, a, an absolute kaleidoscopic necessity for our beings however we define those to be fully engaged with the entire texture of reality however we define that we get some limitations of ignorance and capability and how we define those but we don't get the negotiable idea of not being fully engaged there and we need to start with that responsibility from timeline to time frame to time map. Be moving towards the map. This whole you know, fear of the map is not the terrain. Well, actually get better at map making and you might, you know, worry about that problem first. You know, that's my tool. I like that. Yeah, the responsibility and the response hyphen ability both of those things. I think that's really cool. Um, I also, again, this is a, a great counter to how many times, like you said, have you heard the term, the map is not the territory. I'm going to start trying to do this more often in my life and just say, is it not? It's how do you know that? How is the map, not the territory or the implication of the map is not the territory means that the map is somehow less important than the territory. And that might be backwards. The map might actually be more important. Or it's just a generic, vapid statement that every kind of human attempted apprehension of reality is just an approximation. And yes, we know that. And yet when you suckle a woman's nipple with great affection, I don't think that is an approximation of something. I think that's actually life lived. And for people who think the map isn't the territory, have a look at James Cook's raw handwriting maps of the north coast of New South Wales, which is immensely complicated. Done, you know, in the 18th century. I mean, yeah, I understand all that. I mean, I think we know that. I think we know that, you know, incompleteness theories. I think we understand the uncertainty principle. I think we know a lot about the limitations, the epistemological limitations of human understanding, and that, yeah, everything is kind of just an approximation and a construct and an imaginative, perhaps, hallucination. We get that. But the argument then would be, this is someone new. 
This is Ace. This is my sister-in-law's dog. He's in the Oh, somebody, okay. Hey, Ace. While hey, we were Ace. talking, he got tossed in here, so he might have he might have pissed on something in the house. Okay. Well, see, this is yeah, see, that's not an approximation of something. I mean, I think that we have to accept the terms that of the embodied terms that we're in is that yeah, approximation is kind of what we're doing, but let's be better at it, you know? Yeah. Be better, mat, you know, magical map makers, not dismissing the magic of map making. Mm -hmm. All right. Good Here's one. my tip. This is this is a good counterpoint. Counterpoint. It's friendly and fun. Maple syrup brings happiness. You know, syrup is a great word. It's it's. I love all Arabic words. Uh, it's related to sherbet and shrub, and Arabic words make you feel good. I mean, mm -hmm. I know there's pro I have problems with a lot of the culture from that part of the world, but there's so much of the of the well, the writing itself is beautiful. The women are beautiful. The music's beautiful. There's so much that's amazing, and Arabic love poetry. I think is some of the most uh, emotive that I know of. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. But I think that there's a place for maple syrup as opposed to honey as just a go-to grab for some sweetness and some lift. And that made me think, and this is the larger tip. When I was in college at Dartmouth, that was part of the sugar maple world where some serious people made some very serious maple syrup. And I don't know if people know this, but there are gradations of maple syrup amongst the real sugar shack people. And one of my neighbors, when I moved out on the land, was like a hardcore old time bootlegger but in the maple syrup world, not. <laughs> and there were, the idea is you get the absolute best maple syrup, the kind of stuff that people like Stephen King can afford, you know, mm -hmm. those kind of old, really rich New Englanders. Not that he's old, really, but you know what I mean? But the, they're, they're packaged to look really nasty. And they're signed by, you know, the particular farmer in question. So they look really rugged, but they are so, they take maple syrup to another level. Well, when I did my overseas thing, I stayed with this awful French family in uh, Bourges, 200 kilometers yeah. south of Paris. And they were a real uh, bit of work. They were a nasty family that had made a living out of taking in students and they were really tired of it and they were having a family breakdown and I got into the whole thick of it. But there was a night and they were also like really heavily involved in the communist party in France, which was a, still a strong, you know, uh, Mitterrand was, was part, you know, um, but it, it was time for me to do something as a family event. And I brought this gift from Vermont. I brought a bottle of maple syrup that was, in U.S. terms, it was 
it was pro it was like 150 200 bucks i could have sold it at sotheby's or christie's it was just and this was my special thing i didn't explain to them though what the deal was and to my surprise they brought it out on trays with liqueur glasses to drink as a liqueur and my first thought was I was horrified by this, that this was just a complete misunderstanding of my gift and that my French was not initially up to speed to explain what was going on. And then I realized, I don't, I don't think as crass and stupid as those people ended up being and as mean as they were to me, I think they may have gotten it right. I think they did the ceremony thing taste testing and i thought to myself you know everything about those people i just didn't like but i really thought that might have been an insight and i appreciate that and i'm never going to not learn from that so maple syrup brings happiness everything has a story connected with it if you really look for it and sometimes the people who seem like the biggest idiots might have some clue perfect perfect I love it. Have you been dreaming lately? Any good dreams? I've unwound a dream. I unwound a dream. I think I have at, at several points, perhaps, but certainly of late. I've mentioned, again, my dingo, Jip, who has been dead now several years, but lingers in my mind as my spirit familiar. And I had another dream that was very significant in terms of the architecture of the streets and the fact that it was a, a kind of an enlarged intersection of, of 19th century facade that mingled uh, colonialist uh, Southern hemisphere with America, you know, mainstream main street sort of world. But the, the gist of it was she was running around free. This is my dog, my mm -hmm. golden dingo dog spiritual familiar and i was just absolutely panicked about her getting hit by a car very very basic dream scenario so this hits on my idea of dreams being divided between an intense emblematic single image focus and a larger narrative ceremonial focus i thought about this and i thought about what jip means in my and that notion of meaning that symbolic interpretation that seems to be so fundamental to dream work dream culture and you know the idea is well okay this is maybe a representation of my body and concerns about illness uh, another stream would say money security it could be literally you know my soul my soul mate this is how i relate to the and i've come away thinking about this that all of that interpretive direction of energy is completely valid but it is completely linear it's non-kaleidoscope it's non-mosaic it's non-malarial it's non-organic thinking that dream thinking is an attempt to reacquaint us with. And I came away with, with thinking about two 
uh, larger mythology ideas, but two um, concepts that Borges worked into, I think his some of his best, two of his best stories, the Aleph and the Zahir. And they essentially are different ways of saying a perspective that embraces all perspectives or the emblem that is all emblems. And they are on that edge of hypnotic trance music that then tries to awaken new levels of alertness, which is what I'm trying to do. They're on that level of the metaphysics that becomes physical, that may have its own calculus, but you're going to be oscillating and uncertain in that framework. It's going to be ghostly and dreamlike, and you're going to have to accept that. But there isn't necessarily a linear reductionist perspective on anything, you know, not just a dog in a dream or a lover in your bed or your own physical child or your job or I mean, if we break free of that and just start thinking in terms of Aleph's, Zahir's, emblems, and not having a reductionist idea of it, but just letting it just sit and be present. And as, you know, the dog, your dog sitting, get up in your lap, you know, let the world get up in your lap on its own terms. And resist the conceptual labeling which is invariably deficient to your own purposes perfect that's great advice i have um this one's kind of fun and probably doesn't need too much interpretation but i've been having a lot of sex dreams lately and this one particular one i won't say who i was having sex with nobody in my immediate family related or otherwise right <laughs> uh but in the dream i'm having sex and from behind doggy style right and as, as you, is yeah as you do and uh the woman in this case says uh she keeps you know she's doing that thing you know she's saying like you know fuck me fuck me that kind of thing and so i'm i'm saying okay fine and at one point she's saying things like you know fuck me faster, fuck me harder. And then I say, I'll fuck you however I want. And when I wake up, I think about that phrase, I'll fuck you however I want. And it just puts a smile on my face. It's kind of my motto for, for going through life the past few weeks. I think that's one, I think, you know, but I, I love what she was vocalizing. It reminds me of what Henry Miller said about really sexy women is, I think he, I, I don't know, he's the, the the male writer, articulate voice that I, in my life, who really sort of said the kinds of things that are important to me mm -hmm. about, you know, mm -hmm. a woman. And, and I think he really hit on a few of those things. But I also, I think that's, that's wonderful to sort of, you know, double down on that and go, well, yeah, you, you know, but I think you got into the tussle of the, well, certainly the male female thing. I mean, I I don't know about the other other relationships, but I think there's something wonderful about that. And 
there is that kind of, um, you know, it's violence. It's, it's, it's a mm-hmm. power relationship. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of weird stuff going on there, which we kind of, and in a way, I mean, sex, the whole point of it is the way of dealing with that in a way that, that actually not only doesn't hurt people, but makes them feel good and makes mm-hmm. them feel more capable and makes more people. So, I mean, it was all win-win once, you know, and yeah, yeah. sometimes it can be again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's nice when a dream is that vivid too, because it, you know, it gives you that cool little motto to go through life with, but it's also like, you know, it's so vivid and it's such a memory and why it still puts a smile on my face when I think about it is because I got to do all that stuff and it didn't happen in physical reality. So I can't get in trouble for it. It's, no, you're it's, not responsible for what happens in dreams. You just get to enjoy them. And I think mm-hmm. that is one of the great blessings of the universe that we don't have to take responsibility uh, I'm not saying we sometimes don't feel we should, but really there's no reason to, and there's no, you know, there's no way to just enjoy uh, the kaleidoscope, you know, mosaic uh, fandango of it all. You know? That's a great word, fandango. All right. That'll do it for today. Till next time, folks. Thanks everyone. Stay well, stay curious.